You're listening to the recordings from our weekend with Brad Jerzak. This is Saturday, session one. We hope you enjoy it. As we begin, um, just really welcome you to this place and acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Wadi Wadi people of the Dharawal Nation, and acknowledge that as we're gathering here today to listen, we're on land that has been listening for many, many generations and we're joining in with that. And I want to just honour the elders, past, present and emerging of our Indigenous nations here in this land. And uh, yeah, really want to welcome you. Um, But before we have Brad um, start, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, listening. Because I think, you know, we've all gathered here today to listen, um, to listen to, to Brad, to listen to God, to listen to what the Spirit might have to say to each one of us as individuals and also us as a group of people, as part of the family of God. And I've been reflecting a little bit about listening um, lately and I just want to encourage you today to not just listen with your ears. So I think a lot of the time we imagine that we listen with our ears and it goes into our brains and it's kind of like a mind or a mental exercise. But I actually also believe that we can listen with our hearts. We can listen with the ears of our hearts and that sometimes we hear something that is said and it it rings in our hearts and for some, some way we know it to be true. And we should pay attention to the times when our hearts sing because it's a way of listening that is not just mental. And then I also believe we can listen, to, listen with our bodies. Like our bodies are able to listen, I think. Like you know when you hear something and you, you, you do a double take? That's your body responding very, like, immediately to a listening thing. Or have you ever heard something and you felt tingles through your body? Or, I don't know, you've had an embarrassment. Like, our bodies respond in listening. And sometimes we can have a body reaction to stuff that we hear. And I also think we should pay attention to what our bodies are doing. So there might be things that Brad says today that makes your heart sing that feels like it's an eternal yes. He's saying what I believe to be true and it's, ringing, it's making my heart sing. I want you to really pay attention to that. And if you feel like you're, you know, you're listening and like your body is responding and now your body could respond positively, you could respond with irritation. Um, I have had lots of times in my life where someone has said something and I'm, <clears throat> I feel agitated and irritated by it. Listen to your agitations and your irritations because they're trying to tell you something. And I think when we pay attention to that which irritates us, um, we learn. And so I want to invite you to just really deeply listen today. To not just see today as a mental exercise that your ears are going to have stuff that your brain can understand. But I want you to listen with the ears of your heart I want you to listen with your body. I want you to listen deeply and hear what the Spirit of God might be saying to you. As Jesus said, let him who has ears to hear, let them hear. And so before we even begin today, I just want to invite you to take a moment to just sit quietly with 
the Spirit of God. And in your own way, however it is that you do that, I want to invite you to just take a moment to say to God, I am here, I will listen. Will you speak to me today? Can we do that? Spirit of God, here we are. And here you are. And we say hello to you, just as you say hello to us. And Holy Spirit, we just say that we want to listen deeply to what you might have to say to us. That today we might just not just learn something new, but have something very deep deposited in our lives that we can unpack for many days and weeks and months to come. And so we say our ears are open. And we also pray, God, would you open our ears? In fact, uh, Tony Campoli, Campoli suggests that that literally happened. On Good Friday, when the love of God tore the veil that held people outside of the Holy of Holies, that he also broke the wall of partition that kept the Gentiles and the, you know, all the excluded all the ex it's not just us them walls it's like insider outsider walls the thing that and and so what is this essence that could do that god is love this is the essence and nature of god and so in this first in this first talk i'm uh, we want to get there we want to talk about that a little bit um and and so what we'll do is we'll start on the downside because not everybody is convinced that God is love. I don't know if you knew this. I have been accused of preaching the God is love heresy. Literally. Um, I'm from the Orthodox Church, and my archbishop has given me an official blessing to teach the God is love heresy wherever I go. He says, propagate it all over the world if you can. So I'm going to. Um, but how could Christians of certain streams come to the conclusion that God is not love? Two of my friends were at a, at, at a, sorry, I'm grieving today because my, uh, my confessor died yesterday. And I'm not feeling sad, but I get brain freezes from it. It's weird. So when I get a brain freeze, just like pray me through it. Like I'm, I'm just so happy that he's with the Lord and he's not suffering. But, but I, I have, like, suddenly I don't remember what I'm going to say next. Okay, so, two friends. They're at a meeting. It's a denominational meeting, and they're responding to Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Controversial book, 10 years ago. But the thing that made it super controversial is that folks started pushing back against the love of God, even. You, know, you might disagree with his book, but at this meeting, they're like, we need to respond, and the chairman of the meeting begins pounding on the table and weeping. God is not love. God is not love. God is not love. And everyone else starts weeping because, oh, you're right. This is a terrible thing. It's like, what happened? I, like, I think it was a demonic manifestation, frankly. I don't, like, know, I don't know about all that stuff anymore. I don't know how it works, but that's weird to have Christians angrily pounding a table offended at the idea that God is love. 
Yikes. So then, what kind of ideas of God have we had? Some of those ideas aren't very Christ-like, actually. And yet, we've also said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So, like, that, he is, that he's the perfect representation of God. How, then how could we not say God is love? So let's take a moment to think about some of the toxic images of God um, and where they come from. And so this won't only include Christians. You've got gods of all kinds in the world. Some would want to go back to them. Saw a church sign recently where it was sort of rejoicing that we're now a very open, progressive church and that, like, all our images of God are welcome, including Baal and so on. And Like, do you not know what Baal asked people to do? So that's what we're doing? Like, we could, we could go back to child sacrifice? Is that just... I would want to check their Sunday school rooms. <laughs> but it's like very fashionable to like all, pa you know, all the gods are fine now. And so we'll be neo-pagans. Just like, might want to see what they said though. Violent, bloody gods. But actually somehow that leaked into Christianity at times. Sometimes it leaks into my heart. And I have images of God that have been bad for me. Um, so I want to categorize a few, and I want you to help me a little bit. Um, one, one image of God that I've experienced is, is, is the uh, angry, wrathful, punishing God. The God who can be a tyrant king or a, a condemning judge. The kind of God you might want to hide from. Kind of God, you can find you can find those projections of God even in the scriptures if you want. They're there. And then what to do with those, especially when they don't seem very Christ-like, right? And this kind of angry, punishing God is sometimes we even may delight in Him a little bit. It's usually a Him. Um, and and why would we why would we delight in an angry, punishing God? And here's where I need your help. Okay. Oh, just hyperextended. Just kidding. Um, so, what's the payoff to believe that God is a punisher? Thoughts? You put, throw your hand up if you have something. Okay, I'm coming. Do you ever watch the Phil Donahue show? <laughs> just dating myself here. Okay. Oh, because if someone's hurt me, then I feel like it's going to be justice on them. Okay. If someone's hurt me, then a wrathful, punishing God will. Will, will bring justice, a euphemism for vengeance, on them. That's great. Till he doesn't do it. One of the great problems with a wrathful God is he's bad at it. I have a, I have a whole list. He's not, he's not once, he's not once smitten one of my enemies. The mighty smiter God is quite actually appealing if, if when you hate the other. But it's, it's also disillusioning when the other gets away with it and David has to cry out, why do the wicked prosper? I mean, if God is such a great mighty smiter, he might have thought about that before the six million Jews went to the ovens. 
if God is such a great and mighty smiter, what, why doesn't he just do that before a child is molested, right? And so we get, we'll have God is good problems later, don't worry, but we're working on the, smite, the smiter right now, right? So that can be a payoff. Isn't it interesting then that I'm always the one like not being struck, stricken down? In fact, that's puzzling to me. If, if God is the angry, wrathful judge, okay, I get, I get that he's always angry at me. I, you know, I, I understand that. But, like, why do I get away with so much stuff? I've done way worse stuff than Ananias and Sapphira. And what was that about? Note, the text never says God struck them down. Sin killed them. Sin will do that. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You know? Okay, so, um, so mighty smiter God. Any other reasons why we might be drawn to that kind of God? Control? Who said that? There you are. Here come. Can you just unpack that a little bit more? Well, I think particularly in a church context, it means that you can control your congregation through fear. Whoa. Uh, period. No need for commentary on that. We, uh, we know. Yeah. Um, another toxic image of God that I've experienced, and it's kind of like the opposite. So instead of the angry, punishing judge who hovers over sin and is, is, is like so easily offendable and may lash out suddenly, you've also got the opposite, and that is the, the God who's distant and silent, the God who is a deadbeat dad. Is that an expression here too? Deadbeat dad? Okay, for those who don't know it, um, in North America, a deadbeat dad is a, is a father who's abandoned his family and he's not paying child support or alimony. He's left his wife and his children to fend for themselves while he goes off and does whatever, and he's far away. And for some, God seems like a deadbeat dad. Where was he when this happened? The God who's abandoned us, who's left us uh, to be victims of evil in this world, does not intervene, does not protect. When I was first a youth pastor, I, uh, happily I skipped all the youth ministry courses. I did like Bible and theology because I realized all, all the youth ministry courses in those days were pretty moralistic and it was sort of like, um, well, we do, what are the five cries of youth and how do we answer them? Okay, now we're, we're going to rotate through our Bible studies. Thou shalt not listen to rock and roll. Thou shalt not do drugs. Thou shalt not drink. Thou shalt not feel up your girlfriend. Thou shalt not, you know, it's just like this. I'm like, no, we're not doing that. So I took all these great courses just like, like let's walk them through the story. Right? So that was great, but I thought, I'm going to keep it simple because we got a lot of kids that are like first-timers. They've never been in a church before. They've come and they, they've heard the presence of God is here, whatever that is. And they show up. And so I had a simple, simple theology for them. God is love. God is good and he cares about you. So I'd feel very good about this. And then kid would put up their hand. Where was God when... My, baby sister, my babysitter sexually assaulted me. Hmm. 
And that was, that was a rough one. At one point, my wife was my only female friend who hadn't been sexually assaulted as an underage. Um, that's weird. And what do you say then? Because for them, I, I've just proclaimed a God who's good, and they're like, either he left or he sat in the corner and watched and did nothing. This led to um, inner healing work <laughs> where we heard a rumor. You could ask him. Just ask him, and he, maybe he'll show you and tell you. And, and, and uh, so we couldn't find material on it at the time, so we had to learn the hard way. I'll give you an example. And it wasn't just about sexual assault. It was all kinds of negativity and... Um, I'll pick one. Okay, Amanda. I have permission to share this. Amanda Amanda was a little girl. She wasn't a Christian. One of her friends, also not a Christian, drags her to my office. They'd been coming to youth for a little while, and they heard that, that God is good. They heard that God is love. But Amanda was struggling with anorexia, and it was getting really bad. In fact, um, she was now down to, I think she was under 90 pounds at this point. And she, um, her reproductive system had stopped, like the, her monthly cycle. Her, she was now sustaining some heart damage. Um, she was growing hair where she didn't want it. Like the basic symptoms of anorexia that were like in, in the dying process. And her friend was desperate to help her. So they came to my office and, um, and they, they said, you know, is there anything you can do? And I said, well, we, we could pray. And so I asked Jesus, would you show Amanda the moment when, when this eating disorder began? And instantly she says, I'm a little girl, and my, babysist, my babysitter um, molested me. I'm like, okay. And um, she's like, where was God when that happened? Let's ask him. So she closes her eyes and she said, I'm outside, I'm on the sidewalk, it's already happened. Oh, and Jesus is standing on the sidewalk. And he's holding his hands out to me. And I said, oh, okay. Um, Jesus, would you just take Amanda in your arms? And, and she says, Jesus says, no. He won't touch me without permission. I said, do you want to take his hand? Yes. I said, okay, go ahead and do that. So in her heart, she takes Jesus' hand and says, oh, he's scooping me up. He's taking off my soiled dress and underwear. He's cleaning off the stains that I couldn't shower away in a thousand showers. He's, he's washing off the shame. He's putting on a beautiful little white dress, and I'm all clean now. I'm like... That's Jesus. How do you like him so far? I love him. I said, wow. And then I got a brainwave. If, if he's willing to wash off that stain and that shame, would you like him to also wash off all the stains and shames of everything that's ever been done to you or that you've done to others? Yes. I said, just tell him that. Jesus, wash off all my stains. Wash off all my shame. Um, he's like, he's doing it. He's doing it. Like, I'm totally clean inside and out now. Like, that's really good. 
And then uh, her friend says, I want that too. <laughs> like, okay. So we prayed about that. And then I said, how would you like it if he were your best friend forever? I came up with BFF. I'm just saying. 1990, BFF. And she goes, yes. I mean, it was like, yes, yes, yes. I'm like, this is really easy <laughs> evangelism, right? And um, so I said, tell him that. Jesus, I want you to be my best friend forever. That's cool. So then she ends up, um, from there, she ends up going to a clinic where they work with anorexia. And she has a, um, a counselor who's not a Christian. But her counselor had, a, had heard about a good idea that you could try. She said, I want to try something with you. I want you to imagine your struggle with anorexia being like climbing a mountain. And you're climbing, and it's been a struggle, and you get to the top, and it's really hard, and you just finally sit down, and you're with your best friend. She said, who's your best friend? Jesus. <laughs> and the counselor's like, hmm, <laughs> that will do. <laughs> and she says, I want you to tell Jesus about all your feelings, about all your hurts. Just, like, share it all with him. And so she does. And then she said, and now you listen to Jesus, and what does he say? And it's kind of mind-bending for both of them, and Jesus just began speaking to her. Week after week after week, until she was completely healed. Um, years later, I'm standing outside and I, in another city where, where we've moved, and then I hear her voice. Aman it's Amanda's voice. She's now in her 30s. And she's by her and her husband are buying the house across the street from us. Like, this is awesome. And she comes and gives me a big hug. And she goes, and here's my two children. And I'm like, wow, she got her life back. So for her then, she moved from God being this absent, silent observer of her abuse to one who stepped into it with her, co-suffered it. And cleansed her of it and helped her to overcome it. And it became part of our gospel, you know. The God who is there, the God who is here, the God who is with me. Um, apparently, he doesn't suspend all tragedy. Apparently, he doesn't intervene in every affliction. If he did, he'd have to strap me to a gurney every day. So that I wouldn't harm people. He'd have to levitate everyone who tries to hang themselves. So my friend's um, roommate hung himself yesterday. Where was God when that happened? Well, it should have levitated him. That'd be a weird world. It doesn't work that way. But what he does do is he comes to us in our despair. He overcomes despair. And maybe for my friend's roommate, that means the next life. Well, it's a tragedy. But I believe now God is love and he's good and he's with us in it. And that he suffered it. We'll talk more about that later. Have you ever experienced that? At the absence of God? Yeah? What's that, what's that feel like? I, I'm not going to put someone on the spot for this question, but if someone would like to share, what does the absence of God feel like? Just wave at me. Could someone share that? I saw nodders, but yeah, I'm coming. Here we go. Um, it just feels lonely and despair, and you just um, you feel like you got the 
you just you're fighting the whole world. You're alone. You got no one to back you up. Yeah. And um, have you ever have you ever experienced moving from that to a better place? Um, can you tell us how that happened or how it worked at all? So four years ago, I lost my wife, and we had a five-month-old baby. And basically, in that process, I was questioning. Oh, I hated God. I literally came to a point where I hated Him. I was like that. He is not love. He is not love. He's an angry man that picks and chooses who he wants to succeed in life. And I had this whole download mentality that I was just making up myself in my own mind. Do you know what I mean? And then basically. Moving through the process of that, it's been a long journey. It's been a long, long journey. Still on the journey. Um, but, yeah, I'm in a great place now because I came to terms where it's going to sound a bit – it's nothing against what anyone believes in here, but as soon as I felt God stepped me outside of church to really just work on me, just me and him, so no one can manipulate my relationship with him and he can just work on me individually. And I felt that – the time I spend with God and he's been such a gentleman loving me through that and just slowly just releasing things to me to get this um, overwhelming mindset of who he is and I'm still working out who he is. He's my father. He's my dad. Um, There was an encounter I had with him after she died and it was pretty profound and he actually met with me and we had a conversation and I was still very angry with him after that. And people would say, you just met with Jesus. How could you be angry with him still? I was like, well, it's not that simple. Just because you meet someone doesn't mean everything's going to be, you know, picking strawberries and rainbows and everything like that. You know what I mean? Like, but I will say this, that he did, this is the one thing he said to me, which will never leave me. He goes, hey, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to be upset. He goes, oh, I, can, I can cop it. I can take it. It's a storm in a teacup for me, mate. I created the emotion anger. It's okay. Be as angry as you lot with me till I can work on you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, just loving, like pouring his love into me like in a, in a really not demanding, forcing way. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. What's your name? Brendan. Nice to meet you. Wow, thanks for sharing that. What if, what if we have a God who can handle our anger and doesn't flinch and says, bring it? What did you say? Storm the teacup? Storm the what? Storm in a teacup. Got to write that down. No. So, so on the one hand, not just this angry, arbitrary punisher. On the other hand, not just a deadbeat abandoner but someone who steps into your pain and says bring it you've got to i gave you that and what a mark of friendship with god right there's some people if i'm not close enough to someone to to be angry with them we won't go to the depths we need to go when the shit hits the fan right and he just doesn't flinch he absorbs it and welcomes it until we fall into his arms, right? And it happened. Man, dude. Yeah, let's give him a hand. Thanks for your vulnerability and your courage. You made it.
So um, um, I'll just do one other kind of ne negative category, uh, and we'll talk about where some of these come from. So uh, one other negative, we don't want it all to be negative today, but we face these things. One, one is sort of the, uh, the God, I call him the, the doting grandpa. The God you can wrap around your finger and manipulate if you just look at him right during worship. And you know, how many of your grandparents here? Any grandparents? Okay, now keep your hands up if you're a grandparent. And now let's lock our elbows so your arm's straight. None of this. Okay. All right. Now, how many of you are doting grandparents? If not, you can put your hand down. Okay. What is a doting grandparent? Let's just check in on that. Can you define a doting grandparent? Um, absolute love. And you cannot see them doing anything when they when they play up or don't do the things they should do or the other people think they should do, you know, you just take it and you just say they're being themselves and you just delight in them being themselves. Did, didn't he spin that as if it's a good thing? <laughs> no, it is. It is because they're growing and they're learning as I am too. And God allows me to be myself and you know, he comes along and he's teaching he says, and eventually I come to the stage where I realize, oh, that's not a good way to go. <laughs> I think that that's what grandparents can do, and that parents perhaps don't have quite the freedom in our society to do. Well, that's, that was the sunshiny side of it. Like, I like that. I like that. Um, the shadow side of it is if the, if the child thinks they can manipulate you, or actually do, and wrap you around their finger. Okay, how many are that kind of, don't know the shadow side? Um, so I just became a grandpa a couple years ago, Grampy, and um, and and so it's it's good because we could talk about the unconditional love of God and all of that stuff. But there's a there's a part of it where you can really go to a dark place of of thinking he's a genie in a bottle, and if you rub the bottle right, he'll pop out and give you your three wishes, and so we have books on how to do that. I have a whole shelf of books of it on intercession. What are those books about? How to move the hand of God <laughs> in five steps. So it becomes the genie in the bottle, the fairy godmother. It's like really great until it's not. I found myself in a spiritual direction um, uh, session where I was telling my spiritual director about all the horrible things that were happening in our church at the time, tragedies and affliction and awfulness, and, and, and I thought I knew how to pray. And I, I said out loud, he's not obeying me. That's how safe my spiritual director is that I can blurt stuff out that I would never say or even think, and it, there it was. What happened? Ah, this was the God who I could uh, manage to run other people's lives and choices and joy and sorrows, and I would just pray I'm an intercessor. Sometimes I would do hunger strikes to get my way. <laughs> because I'm super spiritual. Huh? <laughs> and then I didn't get my way. He didn't obey me. I'm mad at him now. 
So it's a bit like when I go, I don't know if, do you have Santa Claus here? <laughs> Not everywhere, like it's Father Christmas or what do you call him here? Santa. Santa. And then like you're more, you're more like Canadians than a lot of the places I go. And they're like, what are you talking about? Um, do you ever have Santa go to your mall and you can get in line with the kids and make memories? <laughs> yeah, well, finally, another country that has that abomination, you know? And so we line up with our kids, right? And I'm in, I'm in the lineup. I'm going to be, and he's, oh, come here, sit on my lap. What do you want? I want a pony. Okay. Just write it down and send me a letter. Pony. I got it to Christmas morning. Socks! Where's my pony? Ask me anything in my name and it'll be yours. Hmm. So, you can't blame a five-year-old for blending Santa and Jesus. You're celebrating them at the same time, same evening. <laughs> so, so, I'm a little kid and I'm laying in bed and I'm six years old. And all I can hear in my head is, you better not... How's the line? What's the first line of that song? You better not cry. Here, I'm, I'm telling you why. Santa's coming to get down. And Jesus is coming again also. And it's kind of the same. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh, and he's a moralist too. Great. So I call this the Santa blend. The Santa blend is when you get the angry God who's legalistic. And the abandoning God who only shows up once a year, and you're asleep anyway, unless you see him kissing your mom. <laughs> or, and also, he's the doting grandpa at the mall who doesn't give you the damn pony. And we were like, roll it all into Jesus. And I'm laying there in bed, and I'm like, I know. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Like, and I know I can't fake him out. And like... Somehow that bled into God. I did a really bad thing at my church after I discovered this. Sometimes I did bad things when I was a pastor. Here's one of the bad things I did. I, we were charismatics. Give us a break. I tried to do a group deliverance for people with the Santa spirit. <laughs> it was messy. I'm like, how many of you have ever, I described what I just described. How many of you have ever, ever blended Santa with God in a way that was toxic for you and really hurt? 40% of the church stood up. I'm like, well, in the name of Jesus, that has to go. And then suddenly everybody's like, Wah! <laughs> like, <"Yeah>, never do that. <laughs> but it did show me, it did show me how we get these weird images of God that aren't actually like Christ. Or they feel like they're cr like Christ. But they distort Christ himself then. Awful, awful. Okay, we're going to take a couple minutes for you just to nudge your neighbor to see if there's any other toxic images of God we have to, that we can just leave go as, as we proceed into the God is love teaching heresy. Um, so just check with the person you're sitting with, two or at most three in your group. Other, other experiences of God that feel off to you now. And if, if you need to go pee, this is a good time. Okay, ready, set, go. All right, I'll have you just finish your thought now, and we'll get back to it.
uh, uh, Carol, can you just share yours, please? <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking about like the holy God, like the God who is so holy, you know, like, and, and it's, in, it's in scripture, like, you know, he's in unapproachable light. Like, if I even look on him, I will die. I will be struck down. And in his presence, you know, he, there can be no sin. He cannot abide sin. He can't even look on sin. And I might get burned with hot coals from the holy altar fire if I enter into his presence. He's so unapproachable. And then Jesus came. And we saw him and heard him and touched him. And sinners touched his feet and didn't die. The great... Um, Jewish rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, he, he has this incredible commentary on the, like, no, one, no man can see me and live. But if he does, he'll live forever. That's what he said. Isn't that beautiful? That, tweet that. Okay. So no man can see me and live, but he, if he does, he'll live forever. Um, women too. Maybe more so. Maybe more so, right? The Gospels are this beautiful expression of the God we thought would destroy us if we touched him. Ends up healing us when he touches us. It's quite amazing. Well, just very briefly, the, um, how, did we, how did we arrive at these weird toxic images? When we have our Lord Jesus Christ, who's the revelation, the perfect revelation of God. Well, one of the ways... We came to that is, um, you know, childhood indoctrination. Um, another way we might come to that is, is experiences. We infer from our experiences. Um, I used to blame all of it on the Calvinists. <laughs> but I think, I think it predates that. I think it goes back to the garden. When... A toxic image emerges from our own shame. And Adam and Eve, the moment they stumble in that, in that story world of Adam and Eve, which is about us, the moment they stumble, they think they need to hide. They have actually composed an image of God from their own shame. And I think that's interesting. He's a God who's going, who, who, who we, we can hide from, so that's wrong. The God we need to hide from, and that's really wrong. And the God we blame, the woman you gave me, that's like really, really wrong. And, and he just comes looking for them. And then we're like, well, he's a, but then he's exclusive God. He kicks them out of the garden. Hang on. He goes with them. He clothes them. He wants to take care of them. And so if we left paradise, so did he, apparently. All right, let's shift. If not that, then what? Here's a passage for you, turning on my Bible. 1 John 4, I'm going to start in verse 7. So this is from John the Beloved. John, the one who laid his ear on Jesus' heart and listened to to the love beats of God at the Last Supper. The one who, as an old man, they would 
kind of semi-carry into the church in Ephesus so he could say a few words. And what he could get out was, Beloved, let us love one another. Some say that was his dying words. Beloved, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone, everyone who loves, everyone who loves knows God. What? And is born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves... I know Greek well enough to go really slow with it. I, I know it well enough to know I don't know it. So when I read it in Greek, I have to slow down and then I notice stuff. Because I had to read so slow. Everyone who loves is born of God. Where's the Christian part there? I love, I, I remember being in a church in England. I'm just like, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. <laughs> Hands up everywhere. Guess what the first word out of the mouths were? But. I'm like, hang on, let me just check. But, no, but's not there. <laughs> there is a full stop. What do you call them here? Do you call it a period? Full stop? Okay. That's a thing. So he who does not love, he who does not love does not know God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. There it is. For, because God is love. You see the period there? Yeah, the full stop. That's disturbing. It's like it's really disturbing because now I, I know uh, I have a Muslim friend who loves me. And he prays for my family. And he loves Jesus. And he's a Muslim. And he knows God. And he, uh, John thinks he's born of God. Um, but some other friends, they're, they're, they're Christians. Hmm. I, I went to a church the other day in Auckland, New Zealand, and there's a twinkle in the guy's eye at the door. I may have shared this yesterday. And I get to, I, he didn't know I was the speaker. And I just go up to the door. I'm like, is this a Christian church? And he says, oh, no. Um, we're all friendly here. <laughs> What's he saying? Clearly he's joking because we know all Christians are friendly. <laughs> right? Okay, back to the text. In this, in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this the love of God, here's how God showed his love. That's what it means. If you want to know what love is, like, you can put a lot of toxic ideas into the word God. We just did that, right? But you can do that with love, too. Is today Valentine's Day? Yesterday? Okay. A lot of, a lot of toxic ideas are, are impregnate that word love. 
really horrible things happened on Valentine's Day in the name of love. But John says, if you want to know the content of actual love, the best, the best and clearest vision of divine love, you look at the one that God sent. And why did he come? To, to give us fullness of life. And this is love, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son into the world to be the, now this is weird, atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, that's a whole book right there. The word there is uh, hilasterion, atoning sacrifice. This, this is much worse. This translation says propitiation. So when I was doing grad studies, I learned that propitiation means this. Propitiation means like when you take a virgin and you throw her into a volcano to appease the wrath of the volcano god. I'm like, oh, that's what we're saying now? <laughs> Is that what John meant? He's thinking volcano god that needs a, a virgin? And that Jesus was our virgin and we throw it, okay, now God's calmed down a bit? No, like that's pagan. It's really, really, <laughs> so that's why uh, in this in NIV, they, They've, they've tried to make a more neutral word like atoning sacrifice. But really, I, uh, the, here's the thing to do. Um, hilasterion is a Greek word and they, that they use to translate a Hebrew word all through the Old Testament. What's the Hebrew word that they thought hilasterion would be able to translate? You know what it was? Mercy seat. He's the mercy seat. The cross is... The mercy seat. He ascends onto the, onto the mercy seat and reconciles us to God. Not God to us. God didn't change his mind. He never turned from us. He's always loved us. God is love. But we had turned from him, and then on the cross, Christ turns us back to God. Come back to God. Come back to the Father's house. He doesn't hate you. There's only mercy. God is only mercy for you. He's not going to punish you and he's not going to condemn you. And I myself judge no one, he says. Because the judgments on the judgment seat is the all-merciful one. We also messed up the word atoning, atonement. When atonement was first composed as an English word, it really did mean at-one-ment. In other words, reconciliation. So Christ is this mercy seat who reconciles us to God. He takes the stranger and says, come back to the table. What happened in English, though, is over the centuries, that word atonement slid from reconciliation to appeasement until we started reading John 3.16 as if, as N.T. Wright says, as if it says, God so hated the world that he killed his only son. No, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and then we killed him, and he forgave us and, inf and conquered death while he's at it. Okay, so, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has, any, has seen God at any time. That's a strange thing to say when you read the whole Bible. Did John not read the Bible? What he means, God has never seen that, the essence of un, the unapproachable light. But, um, but then Jesus comes to make him known. So in this, okay, where were we? 
No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Wouldn't that be nice? By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given up his, his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the Christians. That's weird. World? Like he came to save the world. What if he did? Or maybe he tried to. And he just like wasn't that good at it. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And so the, this idea that essential, the distilled nothing else properties of the nature of God, it's, it's love. I remember... Um, I work a lot with addicts, and one I was, I was, I had befriended this sex addict. He was an old man, and like I mean, he, I, I was really concerned that he might be a predator. So like, I want to work with him because I'd rather work with him than have to work with thirty victims. I, I want to do some preventative maintenance. Why didn't God prevent it? Because Brad didn't go help the predator because he hates predators. Okay, no. <laughs> so, so I want to be an agent of love to the predator to save the girls from ever going through it, right? So I'm dealing with this guy, and he enters a 12-step recovery program, and he's in it for like eight years, but he can't get to step three, which says, well, he can't get through step two. Step two says, we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves who could restore us to sanity. But he couldn't. For eight years, he could not come to believe. And... Step three says we, we became willing to turn our lives and our will over to the God of our understanding. He's like, I can't give my life and my will over to God because I don't believe in God and I can't believe in God and I so want to believe in God, but I can't make it happen. And one day he's so angry, he's, he's like screams in the meeting, what the F is God? And we're like, yeah. Does anyone else have something to share? Because <laughs> we don't do crosstalk. We don't bring answers. We listen with non-judgmental ears and give people like that a place of belonging. But I sure prayed for him. Not many weeks after that, he comes to the meeting, and his eyes are like big like saucers. And he says, what if, eight years, what if God is love? I'm like, what if? <laughs> and then I, I, I took a big step of faith and go, he is. And it's like, I could believe in that God. <sighs> and he came to know and rely on the love of God who would live in him and change, change who he is and how he acts. Just a head, time heads up. I'm going to go about 10 more minutes, and then we'll have a break. 
So then he says, um, and we've come to know and believe the love of God, etc. Verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. If our faith was founded on fear, when perfect love drives it out, what will be left of your faith? But if our faith is founded in love, what will be left is a Christ in us, living through us, right? Well, let's be honest. Lots of us founded our faith in fear. I, I feel like before I was eight, I actually knew God, like as love. I talked to God and I'd listen to God. I was a good little Baptist boy who felt a deep connection when I would pray. But something happened when I was eight. And it's fear crept in. And for the next 10 years, my faith in God was fire insurance. I no longer followed him because I loved him. I just didn't want to go to hell. And I lost that connection because I wasn't interested in the fire insurance salesman. <laughs> or, the, like the, or that's how I saw Jesus, I guess. He was going to save me from his dad. And, uh, and then, you know, all the horrible stuff of, like, being told as a kid at camp, you know, look at this campfire, kids. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Watch what I do. The camp counselor would wave his hand through the fire. Cool. I'm eight. He says, what if we, could you do that? And I'm like, whoa. Now I'm cool, too. He <laughs> says, so now imagine holding your hand there for a minute. How about like all day? Could you hold your hand in the fire all day? What about your whole body? How about for a billion years? If you don't pray this prayer, that's what's going to happen to you. Who wants to become a Christian? Would you call that a willing response of love? Like really, faith is a willing response. That, that's not a willing response. That's a gun to your head. Oh, my. And so I underwent that, and then I became an agent of that fear. And I thought I was an evangelist. When I was 18, at that same camp, Cindy Smith, another counselor, came to me, and she said, why are you a Christian? I said, so I don't go to hell, obviously. <laughs> and she said, have you ever considered the idea of following Jesus because you love him. It's like, <gasps> and just like in a moment, it's like I went back to my pre-8 Christian self and I remembered. I'm like, yeah. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> a decade. A decade of fear-based faith that was so toxic. And yet, perfect love drives out fear and in one statement cindy smith did it was deliverance i was delivered by a good news that perfect love drives out fear love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment boldness because as he is so in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear ek bello that's like when Jesus drove out demons, casts out fear because fear involves torment. 
or punishment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Oh, there's then the haunting stuff. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Jeez. So when I find myself hateful, and I do, I pray, Lord, have mercy. And I invite his love to help me. It's really a scary thing for me when I feel myself turning from love. Because I know, I know where that goes. I know my soul is in peril. I don't mean, oh, now I'm going to hell. I just mean, like, something really corrosive happens in you when you turn away from love. You create a shadow, and all sorts of bad stuff happens in that shadow. So I pray, Lord, have mercy, because I, I don't naturally turn back to love. But, but he's like, uh, he loved me first, so he's calling me to, to turn to love. Um, the last thing I'll say for now is back to essence, where we started. We're coming full circle now. God is love in his essence or nature, and that means patchouli and nothing else. It means, it means he's not love, but also. He is love. The, the ancient church fathers and mothers said this. He's love without remainder. 100 divided by 3 is what? 33 remainder 1. God is love, no remainders. Like a pure diamond. And so then, um, the, the God is not love, people say, well, he's lo he, he may be love, but he's also holy. He may be love, but he's also righteous. He may be love, but he's also justice. He may be love, but he's also angry. He may be love, but also. Um, any thoughts on why that might be problematic? I hear mumbling. Yep. A schizophrenic God. Not, not to, um, not to. We want to be careful with the schizophrenics in the room, but yeah, this idea of the two. Dualistic God. Um, I had a senior statesman in the body of Christ. I just really disagree with you. I think we'd see God very differently. I'm like, how so? And he said, well, you believe God is love, but I believe God has two arms, love and anger. Okay, so this is what you mean, right? Two-faced God, the, two, the divided God. So here's, the, here's what the early church said about that, that God is love only. And he is never holy, righteous, or just as opposed to love. Holiness, justice, and righteous are facets of the diamond of love. You can't have a holiness, righteousness, or justice apart from love. If you do, that's called a Pharisee. That's what killed Jesus. So God is never love but also. God is holy love, righteous love, just love. He might even be angry love, but Hebrews 12 said that means he's like a loving dad who's seeking to restore you. And by the way, you don't take the love, the anger literally as if he's some human that's lost control of his emotions. That's, that's a projection. So it would be love only. So can you see that in your minds? A diamond that's called love, and it's only love. 
And that's God. That's what nature, in essence, means. And then you just see the many facets of the diamond. So any other attribute of God, what's an attribute? It's what we attribute to him. How do we attribute things to God? By our experiences. So we have an experience of his holiness. We have an experience of his justice. We have experience of his righteousness. And we go, how do we frame this? Oh, it's, it's one facet on that diamond. Um, and so diamond's an okay image. Here's a better one. Jesus Christ. And specifically, John says, if you want to see love, divine love, that diamond, in its purest form, where like the clarity is really shining brightly, where the love of God is refracting through that diamond, and in, in blinding beauty, it looks like a cross. What? It's on the cross we find out God isn't like Zeus or Baal or Molech. We find out God is like Jesus. He's exactly like Jesus. As Brian Zahn says, he's always been exactly like Jesus. And we didn't always know that, but now we do because we've seen the one on the cross who shows us that God is, and some of you know that I, I ramble through this. Some of you have memorized it. God is, the cross shows us God is. You can do it. Oh. Radically forgiving, co-suffering, love is the end of it. What was the first one? Self-giving. Self-giving, Self radically forgiving, co-suffering love. That's what love looks like. And how do we know this? Because God showed it to us through his son on the cross when he gave himself completely and held absolutely nothing back. All of who he was is hanging there. Radically forgiving his torturers while they're doing it. Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and the centurion and me. Radical forgiveness. And then co-suffering is what compassion literally means. Compassion. Co-suffering. He enters into the human condition and undergoes all that we undergo. And so on the cross we see a kind of love that draws up every sexual assault in history. Every bullet that's been fired into a human body. Every bit of shrapnel from a bomb that's gone off in every war throughout all time. Every, uh, every child that has suffered debilitating disease and horrific deaths, he draws it up into his own body. All of that, he draws it into himself and he swallows it in love and he recycles it as eternal life and fullness of life and resurrection. I'm like, wow. That's love. That's God. God is love. Tea time. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>